At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's first epistle to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll be reading the entire chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1. Let's listen now to the Word of God. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Once again, relying upon God's help and blessing this evening, let's consider 1 Corinthians 13, God willing, for the last time, at least in terms of this particular sermon series. We find ourselves in the last two verses where the Apostle Paul brings his entire point to a crescendo. He brings it to a climax. He's emphasized the indispensable necessity of Christian love, love for others grounded in a love for God that perseveres to the end, a love that is produced by the Holy Spirit, a love that marks out the true Christian. And he says that this love in the hearts of God's people is such that it will never fail, that it will endure, that love has been the focal point of God's dealings with man from the beginning, and it will continue as such into the eons of eternity. He says, verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. He goes on to compare love with the other two Christian virtues that he often strings together. Faith, hope, and love. He says, now abide faith, hope, love. These three. But he says that love is distinguished as the greatest of all of them. But the greatest of these is love. In other words, when we come to enjoy heaven, when we enter into the kingdom of God's beloved Son in its consummate manifestation, in its final installment, in the life to come, the world to come, as is sometimes called the eternal state, when we do that, when we see Christ face to face, and when we see the glory of God as it were face to face and He shines upon us the light of His countenance in ways that we cannot fathom even now, when we reach that face-to-face communion with God in heaven, we will find that heaven is in fact a world of love. It's not a world of love that relies on faith in the sense of seeing the unseen and so on and so forth, but it is a world of sight and direct experience of God's glory, especially in the face of Jesus Christ. It is not a world of faith Though certainly we don't lack confidence in God, it is not a world of hope for who hopes for what he sees. We'll see him face to face. We won't be hoping and anticipating to see Jesus. We will have arrived and received the great fulfillment of God's covenant promises. You can see in Psalm 72, which I was thinking about during the psalm meditation, as as you see at the end of Psalm 89, which is the end of that particular book in the Psalter, where the promises have have seemed to have fallen flat in a sense, and we heard a helpful explanation of that. But my mind was drawn back to Psalm 72, where you see this crescendo at the end, verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, or otherwise could be translated, are fulfilled. So you have Psalm 89, end of that book of the Psalter, and it seems like it's fallen flat. You have the end of uh, book 2 of the Psalter with Psalm 72. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are fulfilled. The covenant promises are fulfilled, and you see the expansion of Christ's kingdom in the world. But Paul is dealing with something that even goes beyond all of that. It goes beyond the expansion of the Gospel in this world. And in this age, it involves the final fruition of God's covenant in the house made without hands, eternal in the heavens. It's not a world of faith or a world of hope, but a world of love. Now, many of you will be familiar with Jonathan Edwards' sermons on this passage, Charity and Its Fruits, which ends with a sermon that's famously titled, Heaven, a World of Love. Now, we've borrowed the title. And I would urge you to read that book. It's a helpful book. Those of you that are single, that are looking to prepare for marriage, those of you that are married, that are looking to improve your marriage, a very helpful and practical book about Christian love, really for anyone and everyone, no matter what your situation or your circumstance. Now, we've been influenced by that book, but to be honest, I'm not sure I've really referenced it in my studies more than maybe 
two or three times during the whole course of this, if that. It's a book that leaves a lasting impression. You don't have to keep going back to it. It just sits in your mind and in your memory, and no doubt it's influenced this sermon, though I haven't read that sermon in some months. Heaven is, as Edwards sets forth in that sermon, expounding these verses, heaven is a world of love. Whatever else we may seek to grasp about heaven, and there's much to consider, there's much that we might even consider to be pushing the limits of speculation, since eye hath not seen nor ear heard, so on and so forth. But there's one thing that is absolutely sure, and that is heaven is a world of love. And so whatever else we want to talk about, and perhaps in, in coming months and years we'll have time to consider biblical prophecy and eschatology and the book of Revelation and these kinds of things, nevertheless, these verses that Paul sets forth reinforce the most fundamental thing about heaven, that it is a face-to-face communion and fellowship of love with God through Christ. Heaven is a world of love. Love permeates every aspect of God's dealings with His people and is all the more full and free in the life to come. Now, What do we mean when we say heaven is a world of love? What kind of love are we talking about? Well, let's begin to peel away the onion. First, we have God's love for His Son. In other words, the love between the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, the manner in which God has revealed, we could even say the manner in which the Holy Spirit has revealed in inspired Scripture, these relationships is to emphasize the love between the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit inspired numerous references to this, so we take it that He's not offended, that He's not referenced directly as involved in this loving relationship. Of course He is. Of course the Holy Spirit rejoices over the love of the Father for the Son and of the reciprocation of that love in the the love of the Son for the Father. No doubt the Spirit loves the Father and the Son, and vice versa. But this is the emphasis, this is the manner in which the Spirit has chosen to reveal this inter-Trinitarian love in the Scriptures. And if God is in heaven manifesting Himself in a unique way, then we can be certain that He's manifesting His love for His Son, for Himself, between the three persons of the Trinity. Because after all, God is love. And when John says in 1 John 4 that God is love, he's not just saying that, well, God chose to create the world and then became love by entering into a relationship with His creatures, but rather God is love. God is not a Unitarian hermit. God is not one person, but God is one God in three persons. He exists in an ever-blessed communion of love and fellowship. Now, we don't mean to deny the one nature of God in speaking of it as a fellowship or as a communion. God has one mind, one will, one power, one strength, one wisdom. We could go through all the attributes of God. God most certainly is one. And yet there are three modes of being, three persons, three subsistences. Theologians use all kinds of terms. But there are three persons in one God, and those three persons uh, share a communion of love. You can see this in 
the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, speaking of Christ as the incarnate personification of the wisdom of God. Proverbs 8, verse 30, as uh, the Son of God in the first person describes His role prior to creation and during the creation as God the Father created by way of the Word of His power, the Word who was in the beginning with God and who was God and by whom the worlds were made. The Word, the wisdom here tells us, verse 30, then I was beside Him. In other words, in the bosom of the Father. With God. The Word was with God. Here the Word of Wisdom says, I was beside Him as a master craftsman. And I was daily His delight. I was daily His delight. In other words, continuously, perpetually, the delight of the Father. There's a delight between the Father and the Son. Interestingly, it goes on and we're told that that wisdom says that He was rejoicing always before Him. So you can see, again, it's a reciprocal communion of love. I, the Son of God, was daily the Father's delight, and I, the Son of God, was rejoicing always before Him. So the Father takes delight in the Son, and the Son receives that infinite love and reciprocates it by way of rejoicing before Him in His bosom, in the bosom of the Father. This is a a beautiful description of the loving communion between the persons of the Trinity. It goes on to say that the Son of God was rejoicing in His inhabited world. And my delight was with the sons of men. So we're going to see in a moment this love between the persons of the Trinity then extended to mankind through God's in particular, God's covenant of grace. But here you see uh, the Son of God is rejoicing in the Father's love and then that divine love is being poured out upon mankind. God's love for His Son. If this is the love and the joy and the delight in the heart of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the creation, how much more the recreation? How much more the consummation? How much more the commencement of God's eternal kingdom of perfect righteousness and peace with His people. How much more at the wedding between the Lord Jesus and His bride, the church. If the Father and the Son were delighting and rejoicing with one another and and manifesting these things at the first creation, how much more when the Lord makes all things new. We're told in John chapter 14, which speaks to us of heaven. John 14, Jesus is seeking to comfort His troubled disciples because they they get the sense that He's going to be leaving them. He's going to be going to the cross. He says, verse 2, "...in My Father's house are many mansions." In other words, many rooms. "...if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you." And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself again. If the Father delights in the Son as the means of creating the world at the beginning of time, how much more does the Father delight in His Son as He prepares a heavenly abode for His believing people? It's clear 
that heaven will be a manifestation of the Father's delight in the Son with the Son rejoicing before the Father. And you can see something of this in Revelation 21, verse 5 as well. Revelation 21 and verse 5. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Verse 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. So you see, God Himself is rejoicing. You see the exclamation, it is done. He's making all things new. And as He presents this eternal kingdom to His people, He declares His love for His Son. I mean, isn't that the point of the Mount of Transfiguration? As a prefiguring, a foreshadowing of the glory that is to come. Christ shone like the sun on the Mount of Transfiguration. He showed something of the heavenly glory that is yet to come when He is revealed at the last day in the glory of His heavenly Father and of the angels. He showed something of His glorified humanity shining like the sun in its brightness. But notice as well, I think it's equally a foreshadowing of heaven that the Father at that moment declared, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. And so as the Father reveals the Son's glory through this glorified humanity, the Father Himself declares at that moment, again, prefiguring heaven to come, foreshadowing heaven to come, where He will, in the ultimate sense, show forth His Son in all of His glory as the Mediator and say, this is My Son. This is the message that is written, as it were, all throughout the new heaven and the new earth. All throughout the world to come. This is on the doorpost, as it were, of the house made without hands, eternal in the heavens, where God is declaring, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He puts upon His Son the name that is above every name, that every knee should bow to the glory of God the Father. This is what heaven is all about. It is the kingdom of the Son of His love. And more could be said. I mean, if you go through the the references in the book of Revelation, it's interesting how you can see that there are references to God and to the Lamb. The throne of God and of the Lamb. There's this emphasis upon God and His Son that is highlighted for us. This is my beloved Son. This is the Lamb of God who has taken away your sins. The Father showcases His love for His Son in heaven itself. And heaven is the joy that was set before Christ. In one sense, heaven, first and foremost, is the inheritance of the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is His inheritance. We have this inheritance through union with Him. We become joint heirs with Christ. But the fact is that it's the joy set before Him. And so it's a reward for Him and for all His people in Him. So you, you cannot help but be persuaded that heaven emphatically declares and reveals God's love for His Son. His Son as the second person of the Trinity. His Son as the God-man mediator and bridegroom of His people. I mean, in some sense, 
heaven is described as a wedding feast that in Matthew 22 verse 2 you see the royal bridegroom set forth the father calls a wedding feast and invites people and sets up this wedding feast so as to glorify and magnify the royal bridegroom and so is heaven itself it's the father's declaration of the glory of his son so heaven is a world filled with god's love for his son secondly god's love for his saints flowing out of God's love for His Son and the beautiful relationship there where they're mutually delighting in one another, even so, as we saw in Proverbs 8, flowing out of that is the delight of the Son of God in the sons of men. It's the Son of God who was sent ultimately in the fullness of time to redeem God's elect from among lost humanity. And so God's love for His Son is showered upon all those who have been redeemed by His Son. All those whom the Father gave to His Son from all eternity as a love gift and and the Son received them and vowed to, to fulfill the work of redemption on their behalf. It's all centered around the inter-Trinitarian love within the Godhead, but it flows to God's people. God's love for his saints. You see, it's not only Christ who shines like the sun. He's shown like the sun in the Mount of Transfiguration, prefiguring his heavenly glory. But in addition to this, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that his people will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Matthew 13 and verse 43. He says that God's people, the wheat, The elect will be brought into the barn, will enter into heavenly glory, and not just Christ shining like the sun, but as John says in 1 John, we shall be like Him. We will shine like the sun, and notice, we'll shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. See the emphasis on fatherhood and sonship. The tabernacle of God is with man. God the Father, through the work of God the Son, and by the quickening power of God the Spirit, now gathers His children into His house to to fellowship with them, to shower them with love and blessing for all eternity. We'll shine like the sun in conformity to God's eternal Son. We'll shine like the sun and we'll be dwelling in the kingdom of our Father who loves us and who sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Acts 17.28 says that we live and move and have our being in God. And that means that if God is love, and we live and move and have our being in God, then we will live and move and have our being in God's love. Now, technically, that would be true now. Technically, God is everywhere. Therefore, God's love for His people is everywhere. God's covenant faithfulness is everywhere. His mercy fills the earth. And so we ought to, by faith, keep ourselves, Jude 21, keep ourselves in the love of God. We ought to, by faith, perceive God's love in us, around us, every which way. We can never get away from God's loving presence because God is love and we live and move and have our being in the God who is love. And so if we're reconciled to Him through Christ, that love is around us now. But again, Paul's saying there comes a day and there comes a time when it's no longer merely by faith 
through a glass, dimly, darkly, enigmatically. But there's coming a day in which we will perceive that love as it were face to face. What the psalmist calls the light of God's countenance. There are many people, Psalm 4, who who ask the question, who will show us any good? But for every believer, the answer is clear. Our blessedness comes from this. Lord, shine the light of Your face upon us. Revelation 22.4 says, we shall behold His face. His love, not just the face of Christ, but the love of the triune God for us, showcased in the heavenly glory. What does that mean? I don't know, but we're going to experience it face to face, the light of His countenance. You will not be able to find a square inch of your heavenly eternal abode where the love of God is not staring you in the face. It will be unavoidable. We could say on the flip side, for those in hell, there will not be one square inch of hell that will not be declaring God's eternal wrath against His enemies. But my friends, in heaven, not one square inch where we will not perceive, even if we wanted to get away, with it, away from it, it would be impossible to avoid the light of His countenance. Whatever else we want to piece together about the details of heaven, right there, that's all we need. Right there, the light of His countenance, God's love for His saints. And indeed, the love of God for His saints in heaven will in one sense be far more exceeding than it is now. What do you mean by that, you may be thinking? Well, God loves His people in two different ways. In two different ways. There is the love of benevolence or good intention. And so while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet children of wrath, God loved us and converted us. Ephesians 2, He made us alive in Christ. God's love for us predates our conversion. So His love was set upon us when we were filthy, disgusting sinners. Of course, His love was set upon us from all eternity past. But just think in terms of the, the, the state in which you were before your conversion, you were a child of wrath, and yet God loved you and made you alive in Christ Jesus. Now, the love that He had for you when you were a child of wrath, when you were lost and dead in sin, was not the kind of love where He takes delight in you or in what you are and what you're doing and what you're saying. It's not the love of complacency or delight. God did not look at me prior to my conversion as a child of wrath and say, wow, what a great guy. Not at all. We were hateful in the sight of God's holiness. But God loved me with a love of benevolence, a love of good intention. He set His love upon me so that by His saving love, He might conform me to the image of Christ so that I might be holy and blameless before Him in love so that eventually I would be saved and gradually sanctified and eventually get to heaven when God loves me not only with benevolence and good intention, but He actually delights over my perfect loveliness. See, these are two aspects of love that are both very important. God's love of benevolence is the same for every one of His people. But His love of complacency, 
his delight in our conformity to Christ actually varies depending on how much conformed to Christ we are. But in heaven, we will all be perfectly conformed to Christ. And God will delight in us as those who are altogether lovely and delightful, made perfect in holiness. This is why in the Song of Solomon, the Lord Jesus Christ has no problem saying to His spouse, to His bride, Song of Solomon 4.7, You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. See, right now, we have spots and blemishes. We have things that are not delightful to the Lord. I mean, David committed murder and adultery, and the Lord was angry and displeased, right? God's love of complacency for David, His delight in David's life and character was not at maximum levels at that point. And so it is for us in this life. God's love for us by way of good intention is the same for every believer, but He's displeased with us when we sin. His delight in our moral character depends on our moral character. And so by the work of the Holy Spirit, gradually, but at the last day, finally and perfectly, we will be all fair, altogether lovely, No spot and blemish. Right now, Jesus is washing us with water by the Word, preparing us for that glorious wedding day when He will set His delight upon us, not just in good intention, but in complacency as well. And you you can see Jesus makes reference to this in John chapter 14. He speaks of a love of God for His people that is connected with our increasing growth in godliness and intimate fellowship and obedience with the Lord. It's a real relationship. John 14, 21, He who has My commandments and keeps them, it is He who loves Me. And He who loves Me will be loved of My Father, and I will love Him and manifest Myself to Him. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. You know yourself that when you're backsliding, you're grieving the spirit. You don't sense the same intimacy with the Lord. It's not that he doesn't love you and have the same infinite good intentions towards you. It's not as though he stopped loving you, but your intimate mutual delight with God in that marriage relationship of faith is struggling. And Jesus says in these verses, to the extent that you are loving him, keeping his commandments, walking in the path of liberty and blessing and joyfulness, you will experience increased manifestations of God's loving delight as He shines His face upon you. But you see, in heaven, there won't be a sliding scale. It will be perfect. It will be splendid for all eternity. The delight in God and God in us. God's saving love will be manifested in heaven. And that's why Revelation 22.3 says that there will be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. The God-man mediator, Jesus Christ, who will be manifested as the God-man, He'll have His human nature for all eternity, He will be present in such a way as to make it clear that He is the Savior. Does that mean we'll see 
nail prints in his hands and feet or wounds in his side and scars. I don't know. But the point is, he will appear as the Lamb of God. He will be glorified in terms of the saving love of God through Him that has taken away our sins. And it will be clear every moment throughout the eons of eternity that the blessedness we're experiencing is because of Him, because of His suffering, because of His crucifixion, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. The Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. The saving love through Christ will be on display and it will be a marital love as well. Again, this is a marriage feast. Revelation 21 says that the new Jerusalem, the holy city, Revelation 21 verse 2, of course that's a picture of the church. It says it will be coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So Christ that is coming will come with His people, with the new Jerusalem, the people of God, the believers who will return with Him from heaven, and they will be prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So there's a marriage love. Psalm 45 verse 15 speaks of the consummation of the spiritual marriage between Christ and the church. It describes the wedding ceremony and then it says, verse 14, she shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. She'll be clothed in the perfect righteousness of her Savior, of her bridegroom, and with the righteous deeds of the saints. The virgins, her companions who follow her shall be brought to you with gladness and rejoicing. They shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. My friends, that is prophetically speaking of our entrance into the world to come as the bride of Christ entering into the king's palace, entering into that heavenly abode. God's love for His saints. It's a saving love, a marital love. It is an eternal honeymoon in the presence of Christ. Thirdly, the saints' love for God. Heaven is a world filled not only with God's love for His Son, or if you will, the intertrinitarian love in the Godhead on display. It's not merely a world characterized by the declaration of God's love for His saints made perfect in holiness, but it is characterized and filled with the saints' love for God. Now think about it. Think about the saints. Think about every believer throughout history, Old Covenant saints, New Covenant saints. If you're a believer in Christ, think about yourself and your own experience. We have all been waiting for this. We're presently waiting for this. This is our great and glorious and blessed hope. The return of Christ and entrance into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. This is it. You've got even in the Old Testament, Job under duress and under affliction, an old covenant saint in the darkness of the shadow of death as it were. Job 19 verse 23, Oh that my words were written. Oh that they were inscribed in a book that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and led forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. 
And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh, in other words, I'm going to be raised from the dead, in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. My friends, that is the experience of God's believing people throughout the ages. We long for His return. Our hearts yearn for the return of God, our Savior, for our kinsman Redeemer who has been raised to life, risen from the dead. Our Redeemer lives and He shall return and He shall stand upon the earth and we'll see Him. And Job says, even with my own eyes, my body, even my eyeballs will be resurrected from the dead and even glorified as I may be, I will look upon Him with those self-same eyes. And I'll see God in the person of my kinsman Redeemer face to face. That was his longing. That was his desire. It characterizes his entire mindset throughout the book. You can see later in Job, Job 23, verse 3, he says, Oh, that I knew where I might find Him. Oh, that I knew where I might find Him, that I might come to His seat. So he longed for the return of the Savior. And you think of all the saints throughout history, even those who were martyred, who were burned at the stake, loving not their lives unto the death. People in in foreign countries, even as we speak right now, who are being hunted down by the government, who are being imprisoned unjustly for their faith, perhaps who are being murdered and martyred at this very moment. And they're doing it with an expectation that their Redeemer lives and that He will return to the earth and that He will raise them from the dead and they will see Him face to face. So for every true believer, this is what we've been longing for. This is what we've been eagerly awaiting throughout our lives. And even the saints in heaven, you hear them in the book of Revelation. How long? How long, O Lord? They're perfect in holiness. They, they, They... in a sense, have a full fruition of God to an extent, but they're not yet resurrected. They're not yet looking upon the world to come as Christ will usher it in at that last day. And so how long? They're still eagerly waiting. And all of those expectations will be fulfilled when we see His face, when we see Him as He is, no longer through a glass darkly, but then face to face the beatific vision of God's attributes and glory and God's glory in the face supremely of Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. Those who loved God in this life, right? They loved Christ without ever seeing Him. They loved Him and they never saw Him. They never heard His voice in their physical ears. They will see Him as He is. They will hear His voice. And my friends, if they loved Him in a world of faith and hope, how much more will they love Him in a world of sight and sense? When they see Emmanuel face to face, the love is immeasurable. It's impossible to fathom how much love we will have for the Lord Jesus Christ and for God Himself. We're told that I hath not seen what God has prepared for those who love Him. We love Him beforehand. How much more will we love Him when we see what we haven't seen? When, our, when we experience what we have not yet experienced. It'll be like the Queen of Sheba 
who said, I could hardly believe the word that was reported to me, but she says, I've come and seen the kingdom of Solomon and I'm speechless. There is no breath left in me for the half was not told unto me. The half was not told. Scour the Bible, come up with a systematic theological grid and and work out the most precise and detailed eschatology and doctrine of the end times and doctrine of heaven as you can possibly come up with. And I guarantee you when you get there, you will say the half was not told unto me. How much love will be kindled in our hearts. Those who in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says that even in this life, by faith, we, we with all the saints comprehend the height and the depth and the breadth of Christ's love for us. How much more when we comprehend with all the saints His love for us in the world to come. How much more love. In some sense, the first great commandment Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. In some sense, that first great commandment can be read as a promise. I'm not saying that's the intention of the verse, but I'm saying you can read it that way unto your edification theologically, knowing that in heaven you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. You shall love Him in that way. It's not just a commandment, but in a way it's a promise. Through your perfection in holiness and righteousness, your love for God will be perfect. And yet, it will be perfect, but it will be new every morning, fresh and growing in, in a sort of paradoxical way as you learn more about God, more things about Him, more things to love about Him. Perfect in your love for God, yes, and yet bursting even the bounds of perfection. The saints' love for God. Fourthly, the saints' love for one another. Heaven is a world characterized by the saints' love one for another. Notice in the book of Revelation, in uh, the final chapters there when it says that we'll see His face, it says, they shall see His face. Again, as Paul says, we don't just perceive the love of Christ on an individual basis. Yes, that's crucial daily at His gates in our personal devotions. But heaven is a tabernacle. It's a temple. It's a heavenly worship service. It's a corporate gathering. It's a a feast, a wedding table, a reception hall where we're gathered together corporately comprehending with all the saints. They shall see His face. I'll see His face, and dear believer, you'll see His face, and we'll see His face together, and we'll be able to talk with Him and about Him. It will be infinite and everlasting joy, not merely as an individual, as an only child in the family of God, but as a family, brothers and sisters, of which the Scripture says, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, an innumerable multitude. Saints that are in love with Christ, And since we're all conformed to Christ, we will all be in love with one another. Just as the moon reflects the light of the sun, and we we appreciate, we enjoy the light of the moon, even so believers will see in one another even more than we do now. Of course, this is what kindles our love now as well when we see 
the godliness and the diligence and the faithfulness of other believers. That's why it's important to pray with each other on a regular basis. If you can make it out to prayer meeting or whatever you're able to do, when you hear the Holy Spirit working in someone's heart and speaking, as it were, enabling them to speak to the Lord, and you take in their Christ-likeness and their personal piety and godliness, it increases your love for that person. And so in heaven, we'll see all that we love about Christ reflected in the people around us, the people of Christ. And of course, we'll have a perfect capacity to love. Again, the second great commandment will be no less a promise as well. That you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your heavenly neighbor as yourself. Not just as a moral requirement, but as a reality. You will be made perfect in holiness and righteousness. Therefore, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not envy. You won't look at somebody else who's received greater rewards, perhaps greater joy in all that God did in and through them in heaven. And and perhaps as as the Puritans say, uh, the heavenly rewards will be like vessels that are filled to the brim with joy. And everyone's vessel is filled to the brim, but some vessels are larger than others. And you may see someone who's filled to the brim with even greater joy because of what God did in and through their life. And they have greater joy, but you see their greater reward will not cause you to envy them, but because you love them and you have a fellow feeling and sympathy with them, just like parts of the body, okay? Rejoicing with those who rejoice, grieving with those who grieve. So you'll see them rejoicing in that reward and that will increase your joy, right? It's just like if a member of your family gets married and you're excited for them. Or maybe they get a job promotion. Or maybe they just bought a house or something like that. You don't envy them. They're a part of your family. You're excited about this. You're encouraged by this. You have a a fellow feeling of their joy. So the greater reward of other believers will actually increase your joy. And so there will just be this endless virtuous cycle of joy and mutual rejoicing in heaven as we love one another. The perfect capacity to love irresistible motives to love. Irresistible motives to love. Uh, I already mentioned this, but 1 John 3, 2 says we'll be like Christ. So people will see you and they will love you all the more in heaven because of the way that you reflect Christ. So on and so forth. We could go on for a long period of time. You see the point. And there will be no more hindrances to love. The ungodly world Hateful and hated by one another. Titus chapter 3. That ungodly world of hatred that mocks true biblical love and redefines it and corrupts it, that world will be gone. Countless people will have been converted out of it and brought to glory and the rest of it will be burning in hell and it will never come to mind again. The world will no longer hinder our love for one another. Uh, We'll no longer be biting and devouring one another in envy and strife and selfishness and covetousness, longing for the things of this world and resenting what other people have. The flesh will no longer hinder us. We will be liberated from the influence of our remaining sin, from that body of death. Who will deliver me? Christ has delivered us and He will bring the full fruition of that deliverance. 
in the world to come. No more remaining sin. You will never sin again. You'll never sin against God again. You'll never be distracted in your worship again. You will never sin against anyone else for all eternity in heaven. You'll you'll have nothing but love for the saints of God. And the devil, the accuser of the brethren who seeks to steal and kill and destroy and separate and divide God's people, he will be cast into the lake of fire. And there will be no more offenses. In this life, love suffers long and is kind. But in the life to come, love will no longer need to suffer anything. We will not even have to deal with offenses. Matthew 18 will be, it'll no longer be of any use. Matthew 18 will be discarded because there will no longer be offenses between brethren. You'll no longer have to confront people for offenses. You'll no longer have to cover offenses in love. For all eternity, your interactions with the saints of God will be nothing but love and blessedness. No more disagreements about biblical doctrine among Christians. No more denominations. No more afflictions and irritations in our experience. No more physical, mental, chemical, spiritual problems ever again to hinder the mutual love of the people of God one for another. Heaven is a world of love. We will see God face to face through Christ. We will look one another in the face and see the glory of God and be filled with ever-increasing love and affection one for another. This is a beautiful doctrine. Let's bring it to application here in conclusion. And my application is simply this, that nothing will ignite your Christian love more than the proactive contemplation of this heavenly world of love. Nothing that you could possibly conceive of could ignite your Christian love for God and for others, your duties of piety and charity, more so than a proactive contemplation of this heavenly world of love. Nothing's going to ignite your love for God more than keeping yourself in the love of God and contemplating what God has prepared for those who love Him. Think of it. And you have to be proactive in this. We live on the earth. Uh, we're like the fool. His eyes are on the ends of the earth, on the ends of the earth. But we need to fix our eyes upon heavenly places where Christ is seated. We need to be thinking about what Jesus is doing right now. In addition to discipling the nations, what is he doing? He's preparing a place for us. What is that place? What's it like? Let's think about it. Let's set aside time to contemplate this heavenly world of love and it will spur and ignite our love for God. It will ignite our love for the brethren. This was the case in the early church. This is why you find so much material in the New Testament which deals with the second coming of Christ and the world to come. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. Listen to this. Or verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So you see, by the way, here's again, faith, hope, and love. This is central for Paul's understanding of the Christian life. He says you've got faith in Christ Jesus. You've got love for all the saints. 
Why? Because you're hoping in God for that inheritance, that eternal weight of glory, that hope which is laid up for you in heaven. He says it's because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven that you have love for all the saints. We have many things that disrupt our unity in the church. That can be things that disrupt our church and its relationship with other churches or other denominations. That could be things that disrupt members of this church with other members of this church. There are so many things that hinder our love one for another. And Paul is saying here that the Colossians were able to overcome that to a great extent and have love for all the saints, even the annoying ones that bothered them and sinned against them and offended them and this, that, and the other had different opinions about certain biblical doctrines, but they were able to have love more and more for all the saints because of the hope which was laid up for them in heaven in which they would have perfect unity with those saints. Begin to look ahead to the unity, the reconciliation, the perfect love that we'll have with other believers in heaven, and it will greatly motivate you and empower you to love all the saints even now. Finally, it'll ignite our love for the lost. As we contemplate heaven as a world of love, we have to say, just in passing at the end, but it's important to say that the only place where heaven will exist will be, or the only place where love will exist will be in heaven. Outside of heaven, there will not be even an ounce or a droplet of love. In this world now, we see something of God's goodness, His reign on the just and on the unjust, as we see even this evening. We see something of God's long-suffering, even to the vessels of wrath, doomed to destruction. But in heaven, or rather in hell, there will not be anything of that. There will be nothing of the goodness of God, nothing of the love of God. It will be a world of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth in hatred of God. Gnashing of teeth in hatred one of another. Hell will be a place where the total depravity that is described in Titus chapter 3 in this life will be brought to full fruition on a grand scale living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. In hell, there's not an ounce of love, a drop of love. It's all weeping, hating, despising, malice and envy and gnashing of teeth. And so, my friends, we must labor to share the Gospel with those that are outside of the Kingdom of God. Those who are presently without hope, without Christ and without God in the world, who don't presently have the saving love of God in Jesus Christ, and who are headed for a world where they'll have even less of anything that can even be remotely classified as the goodness of God. My friends, if you're outside of Christ yourself, it's urgent that you receive His love in Jesus Christ. This is a love that is stronger than death. Song of Solomon says that if someone offered to give all their possessions to gain this kind of love, they would be utterly despised. And yet you don't have to give anything. You simply have to receive it. You don't have to give anything to receive the saving love of God in Jesus Christ. You simply have to receive Jesus Christ by faith. 
You have to surrender yourself into His hands and trust yourself to Him. Receive His love. And His love for you will impart into your life such a love for God, such a love for others, that will be in seed form and will grow and develop until one day you enjoy this heavenly world of love. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we long to see our Savior face to face. We long to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father, You who are our Father in heaven. O Lord, we long to be pure in heart and to see God, not by faith but by sight, the beatific vision of Your glory and Your holiness and the beauty thereof. We wait upon You. Please increase our faith, strengthen our hope, and fill us with love for all the saints. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.